If you look at the top of your notes, you notice it says wisdom and the good life. Wisdom and the good life. People are frantically searching for the good life. What is the good life? I noticed when I was in Florida last year that there's a new clothing line that's come out that's called the good life. As a matter of fact, we were down at the beach in, in Panama City and there was a new store that opened called the Good Life Store. And it's this whole line of clothes and hats and towels. And, and their the little theme is the good life. And it's something like, you know, you'll see a t-shirt and a pair of flip-flops. Underneath that it'll say, the good life. You know, or, you know, a t-shirt and, you know, someone laying on the beach. And the good life. And that's their, uh, that's their, their slogan, their motto. And it's as if to say, if you get to the place of rest and relaxation and vacation and, all, and fun... That's, that's the good life. Is that what the good life is? Is, is, that how you, is that how you achieve the good life? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that's a biblical picture of the good life. I actually looked up the phrase good life. I was just kind of interested. I, I googled it. Let me read you the, the Wikipedia definition of the good life. They say it's a philosophical term for the life that one would like to live. So when someone says the good life, they're saying... That's the life I would like to get to. That's the life I would like to achieve. That's, that's a pretty good definition of how people in society think of the phrase, the good life. And then as I began to kind of dig in a little bit more, I found that this phrase, the good life, originated with Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. He's the one that coined this phrase and this idea of the good life. So I began to read a little bit about that, and I, I read... Um, really more of an article than I really wanted to, but it was interesting to read some of it and see what Aristotle had to say. So let me just read you parts of what Aristotle had to say about the good life. Aristotle believed that the good for humans would be the maximum realization of the function that was unique to humans. Now, I have no idea what that means, but that was the statement. He believed that the good for humans would be the maximum func- realization of the function that was unique to humans. So I guess he's acting human would be what he's talking about there. Since reason was understood by Aristotle to be the unique quality that humans possessed, it followed that the good for humans was to reason well. Since part of the task of reason was to teach human beings how to act virtuously, the good for humans was the exercise of their faculties in accordance with virtue. So what they're saying there is the good life for Aristotle was using your reason uh, to help you make virtuous decisions. and that, That's, that's the, the good life. But listen, listen what he goes on to say. Aristotle identified many that could not lead the good life. So Aristotle said there, there are certain folks in society that can't achieve this, this good life, this idea of the good life. Women, slaves, and the lower classes, tradespeople and farmers in that time, were unable to lead the good life, according to Aristotle, since they could not make their own decisions, nor could they choose an action for its own sake. Therefore, they were unable to practice the virtues. Animals were excluded from the good life as they could not exercise rationality. Children were excluded as they had not yet had occasion to practice the virtues, particularly intellectual virtues. Those who had experienced great loss were unable to lead the good life since it would be difficult to learn new friendships and friendship was a necessary requirement for leading the good life. The chronically ill would find it difficult to learn the desires of a healthy person. Since health was a requirement of leading the good life, this group was also excluded. Uh, Isolated persons were unable to lead the good life as the virtues necessitated action and therefore required an object to be acted upon. For example, generosity requires a person in a state of deprivation. Aristotle excluded these groups from leading the good life on the basis of factors, listen, outside their control. In order to lead, this is what Aristotle says, 
in order to live the good life, one had to be born into the correct family, social class, a Greek, male, and be of the correct age, which is 30 to 40 years. So Aristotle says the good life is reserved for Greek uh, males uh, that were born in the right social class, the right family between 30 and 40 years of age. Everybody under 30 and over 40 just out of luck, all right? No good life for you. In addition, this person between 30 and 40, correct family, social scale, all that, this person could not experience any unfortunate circumstances such as illness, bereavement, or isolation. The candidate for the good life, besides having the opportunity to act on the virtues, must have known what he was doing, chosen to act the way he did, and chose it for his own sake, and that must come from a firm and unchangeable character. The good life then, listen to this, is dependent, this is Aristotle, is dependent on favorable external factor outside a person's control. And so he even talked about luck being a, a factor in the good life. So here's what he's saying. If you're going to have the good life, external factors have to be just right. Now, a lot of people believe that, even in the church. That if I'm going to get to the good life, everything's got to fall into place externally. If I can just get this job or move into this neighborhood or sell this house and buy this house or get this promotion or my kids go to this school or they get this scholarship. If, I, if these external things happen, that's the good life. And, and, and even Christians find themselves playing this game. And they're looking to, to, to get their external factors, their circumstances in just the right condition so that they can enjoy the good life. But it never really works out, does it? Because the good life is not about external factors. Did you know you can have the good life even if your circumstances are very difficult and hard? Did you know you can have the good life even if things aren't going your way in life? You can have the good life if you weren't born into the right family from society's perspective. Or you're not in the, 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 the right social class or socioeconomic level. You can have the good life if you're over 40. That's good news, isn't it? You can have the good life if you're under 30. But you've got to know what the good life is, not from Aristotle's perspective or from some store on the beach. You've got to know what the good life is from a biblical perspective. And, and Proverbs is helping us to look at life from a biblical perspective. And, and what Proverbs does is it casts a vision for us to say, this is life. This is living. And so if you want to pursue the good life and enjoy the good life and experience the good life, you've got to know what the good life is. So if you look there in your notes, I've given you a, a basic definition of the good life. Okay, the good life is having favor with God and with people. The good life is having favor with God and with people. Now look what it says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 2. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord. A good man will obtain God's blessing. It's not the same, same, quite the same idea as the, the word grace in the New Testament, which is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. This is God blessing those who live according to his dictates and his principles and his word. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord. And then look over in chapter 13, verse 9. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. The, the idea there, the, the light speaks of the, the, the life of the righteous, a picture of their life. It's a, it's a joyful life. It's a... It's a good life, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. So it says there, the righteous experience joy, rejoicing, the, the good 
life. So the good life is having favor with God and with people. Or let me say it like this. The good life is a strong relationship with God and good relationships with others. That's the good life. Now, look at me. That has nothing to do with how much money is in your banking account. That has nothing to do with your job status. Has nothing to do with what kind of vehicle you drive. Has nothing to do with any of that. This is about relationships. The good life, all, it all boils down to relationships. A strong relationship with God and strong, vibrant relationships with others. You might think of it like this. A, a strong vertical relationship with God and strong horizontal relationships with people. So here's the question. If, if that's the good life, if that's the picture that Proverbs paints of what it means to experience righteousness and joy and, and favor with God, if, that, if that's what the good life is, then how do we get there? How do we experience the good life? It, it's, if it's more than just got, buying a pair of flip-flops, what is it? I mean, how do you get to the place where you are... By the way, I'm not anti-flip-flop. On my vacation, that's all I wore, flip-flops. Even to church, but, but that, that may... Okay, we, we'll go on from there. All right. Churches in Florida are a little bit different, okay? All right. So, so what is the good life? How do you experience the good life? Let me give you five thoughts about experiencing the good life. Now, some of you are thinking about me wearing flip-flops in church. Just stop it. We're moving on, all right? Get, you got to get past that. Get that out of your mind, okay? Get that out of your mind. I wasn't preaching, okay? The preacher had on shoes. That helps you. I mean, five thoughts about how you experience the good life. Number one, you've got to get a place in your life where you invite correction. Where you invite correction. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof, anyone telling him what to do, how to live, or when he's gone down the wrong path, anyone who hates that is stupid. <laughs> That's what the NAS says. Now, I don't let my kids say that around now. I don't let them call each other stupid, but the Bible here uses the word stupid. If, if a person does not allow someone to speak into their life and help them make good, wise decisions, they are foolish. They are, they are unwise. So we've got to get a place where we invite correction. Look what it says over in verse 15 of chapter 12. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. In other words, he's doing his own thing, and he doesn't really care what other people think. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. It's a wise thing to let others speak into your life. Look over in chapter 13, verse 10 with me. It's a common theme throughout these chapters. Through insolence, stubbornness, comes nothing but strife. But wisdom is with those who what? Receive counsel. If you want to have wisdom in your life, you need to receive counsel from others. And then look in verse 18 of this same chapter. Proverbs 13, verse 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who, re who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. He who uh, uh, allows someone to speak into his life and correct him if he needs correcting will be honored. He will make 
good, wise decisions. He'll have a stronger relationship with God, a stronger relationship with others, therefore he will be experiencing the good life. So here's what that means practically for me and for you. Number one, we should welcome discipline from God. We should welcome discipline from God. It says there in chapter 12, verse 1, he who hates reproof, he who hates discipline, he who hates correction is, is stupid. He's foolish. Whoever loves discipline really loves knowledge, knowing what life is all about and ex- the, the experience of the good life. And so we need to understand that in Christ, God is our Father, right? And one of the roles of a father is to correct his children through discipline. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Turn back to Proverbs 3 with me very quickly. Proverbs 3. What it says in verse 11, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Same word used over in chapter 12. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the father corrects the son in whom he delights. So according to that verse, and this verse is repeated over in Hebrews 12, according to those verses, why does God discipline us? Because he loves us. Discipline is a reflection of his love. It says a little bit later in Proverbs, we'll talk about it as we get to it, it says that that if a a father doesn't discipline his son, he hates him. That's what it says. And, And so if we were going down the wrong path, doing the wrong thing, living the wrong kind of life, and God said, oh well, and he just let us go, that wouldn't be a reflection of his love. That would be a reflection of, you know, just uh, really not caring about us. But because he cares about us so much, listen to me, when we begin to go down the wrong path, he intervenes and, and he disciplines, and it can, it can oftentimes be very painful. But it's for our good. It's a reflection of his love. So we should invite, we should welcome discipline from God. Ask God to intervene if we're going the wrong direction so we can learn the lesson we need to learn to get back on the right path. We should welcome that discipline from God. He's a father who loves you. If he loves you, everything he does for you will be what's best even if it hurts, right? I mean, spankings, when you spank a child, they, they, they sting, they, they hurt. They're meant to, to get their attention, to correct them so that they know that the thing I was doing was the wrong thing and is harmful and I need to not do that anymore. And God will take us through something painful sometimes to show us you should not do that anymore. It'll destroy your life. So we should welcome discipline from God. Now there's always a question here that arises. I've dealt with this in counseling situations with with a lot of folks. And they're going through some some difficulties. Their circumstances are very difficult. and, And they're trying to discern, is this God's discipline... Have, have I done something wrong, or is this just, you know, uh, God's sovereignty allowing this in my life for whatever purpose? And, and a lot of people have trouble discerning if hardship is God's discipline or not. For, for example, sometimes people say, man, my life is really bad, this and this and this has happened, God must be mad at me, or I must have blown it somewhere, or something like that. Well, I want you to understand that not every hardship that comes to us in our life is discipline from God. Sometimes, God allows discipline just to grow us. Right? James 1 says we should count it all joy, brothers, when we encounter various trials. So when you go through a hardship, you should say, Woo, this is great. Why? He goes on to say in James, because God uses that trial to build your endurance, to build your character. So sometimes God will allow hardship just to build your character, just to help you out. 
all right? To make you more dependent upon Him. And so not every, not every hardship is God's discipline. But here's my experience. When God disciplines me, I always know exactly what's going on. I know what it's about because the Holy Spirit is convicting me of that sin. He shows me a very uh, particular, specific area in my life that needs to be corrected. Right? So I don't just, you know, walk in the house and start spanking children. Right? If, I'm, if, I, if, I, if I use corporal punishment, it, it, there's, I, I tell them why I'm doing it. I make sure they understand why this is happening. And it's the same way with God. If God's disciplining you, if he's using hardship to get your attention, get you off the wrong path, onto the right path, you'll know what it's about. The Holy Spirit will show you that area in your life. He'll convict you. There won't be any question. God is trying to get my attention. So that's discipline. We should invite, we should welcome discipline from God because it's always, always, always a reflection of his love. He wants what's best for your life. Do you believe that? God really wants what's best for your life. Secondly, this word gets a little bit more difficult, maybe for some of us. We should welcome discipline from others. Look what it says back in Proverbs 13, verse 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof, who looks for it, will be honored. Look in verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. And so, you want some, putting those two verses together... You want people to reprove you if, if they see something in your life that needs to be addressed. And you want those people to be wise people. And we'll talk about that a lot more in a few moments. But you, you want to invite into your life discipline from others. And those others need to be trusted, godly folks. That see life from, from a biblical perspective. They have a, a Christian worldview. So they can really help you honor God with your life. But... What's happened in church life is we've got so individualistic. We've gotten away from the idea of community and accountability and living life together. And, and we gather and we do our stuff on Sundays, but we, we've gotten to a place where we don't really do a lot with each other during the week. And we, and we live our lives kind of really separate from the body of Christ. And it's kind of, we're kind of doing our own thing. And, and the Bible says, we said this I think last week, the Bible says that he who isolates himself, chapter 18, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. And, and what we've done is we've functionally isolated ourselves from each other. And so there's no one in our life that loves the Lord and loves us that's speaking truth into our life. And that's, that's a dangerous place to be. Dangerous place to be. And so we need those folks that, that, that love the Lord, love His Word, love us, speaking into our lives. Discipline from others. You can say, Wade, boy, I've noticed this, this, this in your, in your life. Something wrong? Is, something you need to talk about? It, you know, why, why are you making this decision? Why, why is your tongue so sharp lately? Why are you losing your temper? Why, you know, what, what's going on? And, and, and it can come along beside you, help you to, to see what's going on in your life. I hope you have uh, somebody or many somebodies like that in your life. I, I meet with a pastor friend on Thursday mornings, and we get together and, and, and talk about our lives and ask each other some really hard questions about our thought life, what we've been watching and viewing, how we've been talking, how we've been treating our loved ones, how we've, been, uh, how we've been maintaining financial integrity, and a lot of different issues. And we ask each other those questions week after week after week. And I know it's coming, and he knows it's coming. And we're, we're, we're trying to speak in each other's life to, to say, hey, if you're getting off the wrong path, someone's going to say, hey, you need to be on guard. That, that, that's not right. We need to get this dealt with. And so we need to welcome that accountability, that discipline even from others. 
But in this individualistic society that we live in, not only do we not welcome it, we get a little hacked off if someone offers it, right? Someone speaks in our life and says, I think what you did was wrong, or you need to think about this. Man, what happens, right? We close them off. Who do they think they are, right? And that, that individualism has really been the death of accountability in the church. So we've got to get back to a place in the body of Christ where we say, you know what? I, I'm going to get some folks around me that love me, that can be honest with me. All right? If you don't have that, pray about it. And ask God to, to show you those people, provide those people in your life. Invite correction. Number two, how do we experience the good life? Got to invite correction. because Listen to me. You need some unbiased eyes looking at your life because you're biased. You think you're always right. I think I'm always right. You think you're always right. So you need, some, you need an outside objective voice that's looking at the big picture that can say, no, you missed it on this one, right? You, you'll never get the good life where you have a strong relationship with God and, and vibrant relationships with others if you don't invite correction in your life because you're living with blinders on. Number two, be yourself. That's profound, isn't it? Be yourself. So wait, does the Bible tell me to be myself? Well, guess what it does. Look what the Bible says in chapter 12. Look in, look in verse 9. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. So the picture here is of someone that has resources, they have a, a servant to serve them, they have some wealth, but really nobody knows they're wealthy. But the part, second part of the verse is someone that doesn't even have bread to eat, but he's putting on a show. He's, he's trying to appear that he has wealth. He's trying, to, he's trying to, to honor himself in the eyes of others. If you look there in your notes, being sincere is better than being pretentious. Being sincere is better than being pretentious. It says it's better. It's better to, to have a low profile and be yourself than it is to have a, 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 a large profile, popularity, prominence, attention, but you're, you're just living a lie. You're just being pretentious. You're just trying to craft your image so that others think more highly of you. Look what it says over in chapter 13, verse 7. This verse is almost kind of funny. Look what it says. There's one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. Now, this is a huge problem in America. You know how we know this? D-E-B-T. Debt. We want to keep up with everybody else, so we'll go into debt up to our eyeballs. That's, oh, remember that commercial? Go into debt up to our eyeballs to get what everybody else has. And everybody thinks, man, we're, we, we've reached this status and this level, but really we are in bondage to debt. That's what happens. And really, when debt begins to control your life and control your finances, what you're doing is you're putting on a show. You're willing. to you, what, All that stuff is not really yours. It's the credit card companies or the banks. Or, and, and we try to, we, we're willing to, to go into debt to keep up with everybody else. And that's being pretentious. And that's, that's not a good way to live. So look what it says. Chapter 13, verse 7. The one who pretends to be rich has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. 
I read an article one time, somebody emailed me or sent me, and it was really interesting. And they're talking about rich people, I mean, multimillionaires, and the kind of cars they drive. And they did a kind of a survey or a study, and they said most multimillionaires, you would never know they're multimillionaires. They said most multimillionaires buy used vehicles. You know that? They'll let somebody, they'll let us take the hit on depreciation on some really nice vehicle, and then when we, you know, we default on it or you know it's it, it, it's repoed or whatever, or we take it back or sell it. And, and it's low mileage and still in good condition, they'll buy that car. They'll buy a really nice luxury car, but that has low mileage, and someone else took the hit on depreciation. It was an interesting article about how these millionaires drive used cars, which, by the way, is probably why they're millionaires. <laughs> they're, 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 you know, wise with their money. Uh, yeah, Sam Walton drove, yeah, the, the founder of Walmart drove an old truck. A lot of folks that, that have a lot of wealth, you would never even know it. And that's okay. And a lot of folks that you think are wealthy are really not. And the Bible speaks to this. So if you look there in your notes, think about it like this. A constant effort to impress others is a miserable way to live. A constant effort to impress others is a miserable way to live. Keeping up with the Joneses is miserable. You'll never get there. There'll always be some, someone with, some, with more than you have. There'll always be something else you want or something you ha- think you have to have. It's a miserable way to live. So what's a better way to live? Just be yourself. That's the good life. Not, not acquiring much stuff, but hey, I know God. I have good family and friends. That's the good life. That's the good life. So just be yourself. Let yourself off the hook. Stop trying to keep up. Stop trying to put on airs. Stop trying to, stop trying to portray yourself in a certain light and just be yourself. Be who God made you. Enjoy the Lord. Enjoy your friends. Enjoy your family. And I guarantee you, you'll be a lot more content in life. A lot more content. It's miserable to try to keep up with other folks. Be yourself. Number three. How do you experience the good life? You invite correction. You've got to be yourself. But third, you've got to watch your tongue. Our tongues get us into more trouble than anything else. They really do. That's why the Bible talks about the tongue so much. And and let me just say it like this. You You will not experience the good life if your tongue rules the day in your life. You just won't. Because it's going to get you in all kinds of trouble, and it's going to make you and everyone around you miserable. <laughs> Watch your tongue. Now, in this passage, chapters 12 and 13, we see some calls to certain types of speech. First of all, we see a call to honest speech. A call to honest speech. Look what it says in chapter 12, verse 17. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Watch verse 22. Lying lips are looked down upon by the Lord. Is that what it says? Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are his delight. Now remember, this is one of the big ten, right? Is it number nine of the Ten Commandments? Do not bear, number eight, do not bear, number nine, do not bear false witness, right? 
the Bible says. It's just a, a, a commandment from God. It's an expectation from God. He wants us to tell the truth, and he hates it when we lie. And lying tongues get us into all sorts of trouble. And so we see in this passage a call to honest speech. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Tell the truth. Don't lie. Don't deceive. Don't mislead. Don't misrepresent. Tell the truth. A call to honest speech. I'm telling you, these days, listen to me. In your family, in your workplace, in your sphere of influence, honest speech will be refreshing to those around you. Because there's not a lot of it out there these days. A call to honest speech. Secondly, a call to encouraging speech. Chapter 12, it says verse 18, second part of that verse, the tongue of the wise brings healing. So this is a call to speech that actually heals others, that actually helps others. And look what it says in verse 25 of chapter 12. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Isn't that good? How many of you know anxious people in your life? Raise your hand. How many of you deal with anxiety yourself? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Thanks for your honesty. Anxiety is something that weighs our heart down. We all deal with anxiety in some way, shape, or form. And anxiety is like a weight. It's like a burden. And, and what's happening in our society, what's happening in the people in your life, is they're walking around weighed down all the time by this worry, by this burden, by this anxiety. And the Bible says that your tongue can be an instrument of healing in their life if you will speak encouraging words. You can, you can help them be relieved of that anxiety with a good word. And so ask yourself this question. Are my words good? Do my words help? Do they bless? Do they encourage? Do they build up? Hold your place. But turn to Ephesians with me, chapter 4. I think we might have read this last week, but can't read this verse enough. Ephesians 4. What it says in verse 29. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. The word edification means to be built up. Only speak words that build others up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. So here's the test. Does your speech build up and administer grace and relieve people's anxiety, uh, or does your speech tear down? Is it cynical and rude and mean and cutting and spiteful and malicious and gossipy? Or is your speech good? Does it, does it promote good things? Is it encouraging? A call to encouraging speech. I don't know about you, but I am drawn to people in my life that are encouragers. Aren't you? The people that you like to be around, those people that encourage, that build up. And you know who those folks are in your life. And we want to be those types of folks. A call to encouraging speech. But listen to me. To encourage others, you've got to quit being so wrapped up in yourself. Sometimes I'm so wrapped up in what i got going on. I'm so busy with what I've got going on. I, 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 can be so tun- I have such tunnel vision and focus that sometimes I can forget to stop and, and try to speak words that, that em- it encourage others and build others up. So we've got to, we've got to 
listen to this call for encouraging speech. Here's a practical little application. Every day, every day, look for at least one person to say something encouraging to. Every day. Start with your family, workplace, friends, whatever, on the golf course, wherever. Look for someone to speak an encouraging word to every day. Just one, just one a day. Start with that and see what happens. I'm not talking about being fake either, okay? I'm not talking about, because the Bible speaks about flattery too. That you say something you don't really mean to make people like you more, that's flattery. Okay, you got to be honest, okay? So, so, you know, don't go up to someone and say, boy, I just, I just, uh, I just love your earrings. If you think the earrings are hideous, okay? That's, that's flattery. That's wrong, okay? Find something you do like and encourage them with their speech, with your speech. A call to encouraging speech. We are in desperate need of encouragement. One of my favorite stories of encouragement, you may have heard me tell this story before. If you have, just uh, nod and smile and act like you're interested. But when, when, I, when, I first, when I first was called to the ministry, called to preach, my pastor, who had kind of walked me through that call to ministry, invited me to preach at my church on Homecoming Sunday, which is a big deal. Homecoming was when everybody came back to the church and we ate dinner on the grounds. And it was probably, other than Easter, uh, the highest attendance of the year. And so my pastor said, wait, I want you to preach Homecoming Sunday. I mean, so I was like, wow, I never preached a sermon before. And so I got my sermon ready, and it was, it was, it was, it was not good. Just trust me. It was, I'm not being, that's not false humility. It's just, it was not good. And, and get this, it was 18 minutes long. And y'all say those were the good old days. But anyway, 18 minutes long, I'll never forget it. And I, I preached the message, and I came down, and... Uh, it was good. It was just an encouraging time where the, where the Lord confirmed some things in my life. But it, it really wasn't a good sermon. It was scattered. I was all over the Bible. You know, I was from Genesis to Revelation and, and in, all in between. And, and it was kind of scattered. And I was talking, uh, you know, I still talk fast. But I was talking fast. And, and it, was just, it was just, it was, it was not a great sermon. After the dinner on the grounds, I'll never forget, I was walking back towards my vehicle. And there was an older gentleman there. His name was Mr. Nelson. And, and really, to that point, I never remembered having a long conversation with Mr. Nelson. He was just always there, always constant, quiet gentleman, kept to himself. He was a, a widower, by, widower by this time. He was standing out in the, the churchyard, and I was walking by, and he stopped me. And he said, son, he said, that was some good preaching. That was, that was good preaching. And he talked about how the sermon blessed him. And he said, he said, he said something about like it was a, you know, neck Billy Graham or something like that. And. And, uh, and, and he was being very kind and very generous and, and very grateful. And I don't think it was flatter. I think he was really trying to encourage me. And he got done, and I walked away, and man, I just felt great. One word of encouragement uh, moved me in the direction God wanted me to go. And so we need to be encouragers, a call to encouraging speech. All right? So look for somebody to encourage tomorrow. If you can't think of anybody, then call me. Say something nice. Third, a call to guarded speech. Look in chapter 12 with me of Proverbs. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Chapter 12, verse 13. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. His lips get him into trouble. And then look what it says. In verse 14, a man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words, and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. Then look in chapter 13, verse 3. 
The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. In other words, your mouth can get you into all kinds of trouble. And so if you don't seek to guard your speech and make sure that it is spirit-filled, then your mouth will get you into trouble in your relationships, in the different avenues of life. Your mouth will get you into trouble. That's why James chapter 3 says that our, our tongue is like, gives us two pictures of the tongue. It says it's like poison and like a raging forest fire. In other words, our tongue has the potential to destroy others. It really does. It has the potential to destroy others. And then it says, or right before that it says in James, that it's like a, the rudder of a ship or the bit in a horse's mouth. It's really small, but it has the power to control the direction of, of, of your life. Just like a, a small bit in a horse's mouth controls the direction of the horse and a small rudder controls the direction of a very large sailing vessel, the tongue, the little bitty tongue in our mouth, can control the destiny of our life. It really can. So we've got to guard our speech. Uh, look over with me in Psalm 141. Hold your place there, but turn to Psalm 141. I'll give you a little prayer to pray in regard to this. Psalm 141, verse 3. It's a great prayer to pray. David says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. What a great prayer to pray. Lord, guard my speech. Don't let me tear down. Don't let me mislead. Don't let me destroy. Guard my speech. May it be encouraging and godly and good. So we need to really watch our tongues. Fourth, we want to experience the good life. Strong relationship with God. Vibrant relationships with others. We've got to work hard. Work hard. That's what bothers me about the, the good life store at the beach with the flip-flops and the hammocks and the sunshine and the, you know, the people laying by the ocean. That, they're saying that's the good life. If, if, you, if you get to this level of, of relaxation, that's the good life. The Bible paints a very different picture. The Bible says the good life is letting God provide for you through your own work. That's fulfilling when you do that. So we've got to work hard. Work hard. If you look there in your notes, lazy people will not experience the satisfaction of seeing God provide through the means of hard work. Lazy people will not experience the satisfaction of seeing God provide through the means of hard work. Look in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. That's a pretty cool verse, isn't it? People, people that are godly aren't cruel to animals. Kind of a neat thought. Righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Wicked folks are cruel, even animals. Verse 11, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. The wicked man desires the booty of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. So saying there that the, the righteous man works hard and God provides for him, satisfies him with bread as a result of his work. And the wicked man is chasing down riches. 
and will do wicked things to achieve those riches. Lazy people will not experience the satisfaction of seeing God provide through the means of hard work. God has wired in us this need to be productive, I believe. And, and, and what we're seeing happen, this is really disturbing to me, is we're seeing a, a generation of young people, particularly males, in their 20s, who are, and it's not across the board, so if you know a 20-year-old that doesn't fit this bill, then I, I understand that. But, but there's, there's a generation with this, with this mindset of, of you know, just kind of getting by, uh, you know, work ethic issues. If you talk to anybody that owns a business, ask them if they're having trouble finding good employees. I guarantee you the answer will be yes. We're having a hard time finding people. When I was a student pastor, and even now as a pastor, when I talk to young people, and they get their first job or whatever, I, I tell them this. I say, if you will just show up to work on time and work while you're there, I guarantee you, you will move up in the organization. Because nobody else is. Nobody else is. So if you just show up on time and just work while you're there, nothing special, just work. You will shine like a light because no one else is working. I, and I believe that. And, I, and I, I've seen that uh, time and time. It don't matter what organization it is. They'll move you up if you'll show up on time and work. You can start out at the lowliest position. They will move you up if you'll show up on time and work. But we're seeing the generation of people that do not like to work. And, and we see uh, uh, you know, young men that, that, that are you know, still living at home playing video games instead of you know, working, finding a job, being responsible, being able to provide for a wife. And, and, and you know, we see the, the age of people getting married is getting, getting older and older and older. Because there, there's this, this, this dearth of, of men who are responsible and ready to provide for a family. And that's sad. That's sad. That's sad to me. That's sad to you. I mean, I don't want to be, you know, uh, known as the guy that plays video games at my mom's house. Right? I want to, I, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, make my own way in life. And, and, and that's what Proverbs calls us to do. Lazy people will find themselves lacking what they need. Look in chapter 12, verse 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand, the lazy hand, will be put to forced labor. They'll find themselves in very unpleasant situations. Look in verse 27. A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. So he, he lacks what he needs. And then look in chapter 13, verse 25. This is a really powerful verse. Chapter 13, verse 25, the last verse in this chapter. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. You remember what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica? He said, if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. And he said, a man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Wow, that's strong language. Strong language. The Bible highlights the dignity of, of work. God promises to provide for us, but here's the way He provides. He provides through our diligence. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, send resources to the door of the lazy person. It's not how it works. Lazy people will find themselves lacking what they need. God has ordained that we make our living by working. Look in chapter 13, verse 11. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. In other words, if you want wealth that lasts, 
provision that lasts. You do it by working hard day after day, week after week, year after year. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of resources that will be there to stay. But these get-rich-quick schemes, or people that get a lot of money at one time through something, uh, look at their life 10 years down the road. I mean, you see all the time lottery winners win millions of dollars and, and then they go back. Football players, NFL football players, the number of NFL football players that were making multi-millions of dollars but are now bankrupt. You see it all the time. The way God has ordained for us to acquire our provision is through day in, day out, hard work. We make our living by work. That's why I laugh and I'm in my truck driving and I hear the radio and hear something like this. You want to make money at home? You can make money just by surfing the internet. If you just stay home and surf the internet, then you'll make a lot of money. And it's all this, you know, if you do this, you can stay home, don't have to leave, surf the internet, and all this money's going to come in, and you're going to be rich, and it's going to be great. And, you, and I'm thinking, that's just not God's way. That's just not God's way. And so we want to be people that work hard. Christians, Christians should have the greatest work ethic in any workplace. Christians should lead the way. You know why? It says the New Testament... That we work not to please men, we work as to be pleasing to the Lord. And so if that's true, we should lead the way in diligence in the workplace. Amen? Work hard. This is a big deal. Boy, I could spend some time there. We'll go to the next one real quick and close down. So how do you experience the good life? You invite correction. So you don't, you don't live with blinders on. You've got to be yourself. You've got to watch your tongue. You've got to work hard. But fifth... You've got to choose the right friends. Choose the right friends. Look in chapter 13, verse 20. This is probably the verse that I quote the most in the book of Proverbs to others. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will what? Suffer harm. This is a biblical principle that is always true. We become like the company we keep. Sooner or later, if you hang around someone long enough, they will influence you. We become like the company we keep. Look in chapter 13, verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. So when we're around wise folks, godly folks, righteous folks, then their, their life is like a fountain to us. It gives us life. It helps us to go in the right direction. But... When we're around the wrong folks, it can influence us in the wrong direction. Turn to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. It's a great verse to mark in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 33. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Do not... Be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's just how it is. How it is. We become like the company we keep. There's just no question. That's that's just an indisputable principle because it's in the Bible and we see it played out in in, in our lives and lives of our loved ones so much. So here's what that means practically. Number one, better choose your spouse wisely. (laughs) Look in chapter 12, verse 4. It's a good word for our young people. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. It 
An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. It's pretty graphic, isn't it? And so our most important earthly relationship is our spouse. If God uh, ordains for us to be married, I know that God uh, chooses for some to be single, but if God ordains for us to be married, the relationship with our spouse is our most important relationship and we better choose wisely because an excellent wife is good. She crowns her husband, uh, brings honor to her husband. That's what the picture of the crown means, brings honor to her husband. But the, the wife who shames him is like rotten bones. Very, very graphic picture. So choose your spouse wisely. Now, here's another thing I see in this younger generation. We're seeing a lot of folks that they graduate from high school and they skip out of church and we know statistically that a lot of these folks come back around 30. Not a lot, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them come back around 30. They, were, they had a church background, but they get out and they, you know, they're doing their own thing for about you know, 10 to 12 years. They come back around 30, about the time they start having kids. A lot of times that's a kind of a trigger. Okay, I need to have these kids in church, which hopefully is a trigger to say, I need to have me in church. But anyway, and, and so you have this generation that is re- really unchurched. If you look at any church, any, we have great churches in this, in, in this DeSoto County area. Most of them, including us, is struggling with really tapping into that 20-something generation. It's, it's a largely unchurched generation. And you know what's happening in that time span of their life? They're choosing career. Friends. Spouse. And they're making the biggest decisions of their life, and God's not on their radar screen. That's scary, isn't it? And so, naturally, a lot of people are going to make unwise mistakes. Now, does God redeem some of that, and God help, and, and God, you know, intervene, and, 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 and bring good out of bad? Yes, 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 and yes. God is a, a, a gracious God, and a, and a powerful God. And I've seen God step into the most difficult situations and bring hope and healing. But I, I'm just telling you, to make the biggest decisions of your life without God in the equation is going to turn out badly. And that's what's happening in our land. That's what's happening in the generations, uh, the, the younger generations of our nation. So choose your spouse wisely. Make sure God's in the equation. Next, choose your friends wisely. Look in chapter 12, verse 8. Chapter 12, verse 8. A man will be praised according to his insight. The one of perverse mind will be despised. We want to be around people that have insightful minds, good minds, godly minds, righteous minds, not perverse minds. We want to be around the right people that will point us in the right direction. So choose your friends wisely. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Choose your friends wisely wisely. Let me just address something real quick here that's, that's a tension you see in Scripture. The tension comes where we're told to be around godly people that will influence us in the right direction. But then we look and we see that Jesus was a friend of sinners. You understand what I mean by that? So how, do you, how do you reconcile that tension between those two? I mean, how, how can we obey the Bible, and be around wise people, so we'll be wise, but yet influence those that are ungodly and far from, far from the Lord and, and, and sinners that need a Savior. 
Because we're told very clearly that we're to, to go after. We're to, remember we said last week that he who wins souls is wise. Right? So how, we, how do we deal with that? How can I be a friend of sinners and yet obey Proverbs 13.20 or live out Proverbs 13.20? Well, here's, here's the key. I think we can spend time around people that are ungodly as long as we're influencing them more than they are influencing us. But when the time comes, they begin to influence you more than you're influencing them. It's time to get out of the equation for a while till you grow in Christ. And I believe that we need to have some constant accountability in our life. So if, so if we're engaging folks that are far from God and trying to point them to Jesus and be their friend and, and be a friend of sinners just like Jesus was, that we can have some wise people in our life that say, okay, I'm, I'm watching your back. You know, I, I'm here to, here to say if I see anything going on that, that needs to be addressed so you don't get sucked into a certain type of lifestyle or mindset. And you have some, some friends in Christ that are holding you accountable. So, it, yes, we need to engage those that are sinners, those that are far from God. The Bible commands us to do that. But you need to make sure that you're influencing them more than they're influencing you. That you're moving them towards the Savior and they're not moving you away from the Savior. Okay? Uh, at the same time, while you're trying to influence them, you have this strong group of, of Christians around you that are helping you, holding you accountable and encouraging you and, and helping you to live a wise, godly life. So I think that's how you address that tension. There is a tension there. Uh, we can navigate it if we've got the right people around us. Okay? Just that's some food for thought. Food for thought. So, walk in wisdom. Live the good life. Wisdom in the good life. Invite correction. Be yourself. Watch your tongue. Work hard. Choose the right friends. Now, you'll notice we, we jumped around a lot tonight. That's because Proverbs jumps around a lot. And you have to kind of piece some verses together to come up with these themes. Because, you, you know, Solomon changes directions quickly. He's like stringing pearls on a, on a, on a, on a string. He's putting pearls on a string. He's, he's just putting these different pearls. They're all great pearls, but they're not always uh, connected by a theme. So you have to kind of discern those themes as you work through the book.